The hybrid workforce is here to stay, and it requires real-time visibility, control, and rapid response of every endpoint, whether it's in the office or home. Tanium offers an endpoint management and security platform built for the most demanding IT environments. Many of the world's largest and most sophisticated organizations, including nearly half of the Fortune 100, rely on Tanium to deliver unmatched endpoint visibility and control. Whether you're preparing for zero trust or protecting your network from supply chain risk, Tanium empowers technology leaders to achieve greater agility, efficiency, and confidence. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium. Today's networks are changing fast and employees, devices, and infrastructures are more distributed than ever. Gigamon Threat Insight is a cloud-native, high-velocity network detection and response solution that's purpose-built to enable you to get in front of this transformation. Discover hidden network threats, automate security investigations, and optimize security workflows to stay a step ahead of attackers with Gigamon Threat Insight. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Gigamon. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. The Cyber Risk Alliance, in partnership with InfraGuard, has launched the Critical Infrastructure Resilience Benchmark Study. Measure your readiness for ransomware by completing the survey and getting your score by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CIRB. If you missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they're available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand now on to the enterprise security news where do you want to start i always ask this question like where do you want to start and then i don't give the other host the opportunity to answer and i'm like i think we should just start here so unless you feel strongly about where which story you'd like to start I, with I, th I think april uh should get pick okay pick. April's i was frankly shocked that not that there are still pneumatic tubes in places. I mean, I know that there are, but people are still using them. What? It's just a series of <laughs> tubes, April. I, I know. That's I, know I, I don't know why I thought of that with this story. I mean, that's a throat like yeah, I'm old. It's like the, it's like the proto internet. Yeah. <laughs> but pneumatic tubes, when I always think of the bank, like when you actually yeah. go to the bank and you're in a drive through and it, it sucks the tube through the to the the thing through the pneumatic tube, right? That's what I always think of. Apparently, someone uh, says those aren't those aren't as like sophisticated or whatnot. But I think it's weird. I've never have has anyone seen one of these in the hospital? I don't know that I've seen. I, these. I have not. I imagine it's it's yeah. like um, I guess like hotels and stuff and bed beds and breakfast have like a dumb waiter. So it's it's like a like a dumb waiter, but for uh, I, I guess it goes b between what the pharmacy and some of the hospital floors. Is that I've spent what they a use lot of time in hospitals? I mean, medication. Hopefully, not as a patient, thankfully, right? But I mean, I have three kids. Which, which if you have three kids, you spent a lot of time in the hospital. My wife works in a right. hospital, and we frequently talk about the. Well, did I, you ask I, her about this one? I have not had a chance to ask her about this one if there are pneumatic tubes for things like if if i worked in a place with pneumatic tubes i'd be messing with them constantly right i'd be, I'd be just like a kid in toys r us i mean because it's it's essentially a controlled potato cannon is what it is i mean <laughs> let's just be honest right um but armis has identified i, I didn't know that there was like a, it always amazes me as much as i love technology and iot devices it amazes me that Everything has, like when I got my new smoker, and I'm like, oh, like, of course it has to connect to Wi-Fi, so I have an app on my phone, so I know when 
the, the smokers ready uh, to start barbecuing. But these have, these are uh, TransLogix pneumatic tube system, and <clears throat> they are used in more than 3,000 hospitals worldwide. They are responsible for delivering medications, blood products, and various lab samples across multiple departments of a hospital. Interesting. And, but oh, they're like smart. They're like smart pneumatic. They're like smart pneumatic tubes. No. Yeah. Up until Did today, I thought that I, I thought that the biggest threat to pneumatic tubes was something I saw on Reddit, which was um, somebody asked what would happen if uh, somebody sent bees through the tube. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, well, well, what is your plan if somebody sent bees through the tube? Like, like that I was just the biggest a bunch of my dirty gym socks. Like my dirty gym socks are going right, right through the pneumatic tube at the bank. Like, what are they going to do? But this I, could actually lead to compromise of um, of. Uh, uh, like a card, like a your RFID card. It's so. Is the RF, RFID card? Do I have to swipe that before the tube? You have to swipe it before you use it. Yeah. That's what I read in the, oh, the article. I'm clearly not an expert on pneumatic tubes, but according to the article, you have to. Um, it, it sounded like you have to swipe in to use it. This is fascinating. Did you see what they called it? The the set of vulnerabilities they called Pwned Piper. Of course. Could you have to have a cute name? Is there a logo? And, and apparently apparently part of the product uh, I think this is part of the product name is called WhoTube. It's like YouTube but W H O WhoTube. Mm. Um you know what is the impact? I mean look Let's just say, uh, I, don't know. I, mean, I mean, we we talked about ransomware a lot and stuff. Like, what if I can take out the pneumatic tubes? How I was curious. As much as I've talked about people, uh, you know, talk to people who work in healthcare about the various impacts. Like, if this goes down, like, do you just do you call in extra staff to run the you, samples? You just have to hit and, the stairs or the elevator. Right? Yeah, but you don't want your. Uh, like if you're a lab technician and you draw someone's mm. blood sample, let's say, right, and you've got the pneumatic tube, you swipe your RFID, and it goes, like, I, I can't make the noise, but it, we need a soundboard back to our previous yeah. discussion, right? <laughs> it goes off to the lab, right? <laughs> but like can't you have sound, like? Right? I mean, the hospital has transporters that wheel patients around. Like, wouldn't you just call in maybe some extra transporters? Maybe you know you give them some overtime, and they're running samples to the lab. I mean, they yeah, know where runners, the lab is. They know the layout of the hospital. They're transporting patients, right? Like, like, like in a restaurant, you've got folks just you know cleaning bussing tables, cleaning yeah, bussing tables. Yeah, you just yeah. I, I imagine that's probably what they would do. But I mean, but, some of these hospitals are probably really big. I mean, you, you know. Armas seems to know their, their stuff. They found a oh, lot sure. of vulnerabilities over the years. Uh, I don't know if you remember the Blueborn Bluetooth vulnerabilities. It was like a series of seven vulnerabilities that affected like every Bluetooth <clears throat> stack I ever. I do. Re- yep. Yep. Yeah. Like, headlines were, were like billions of devices affected. But of course, like we never saw any attack against it in the wild. Mm. It required physical proximity to the Bluetooth device. And, and like a lot of it was uh, like you, you needed at least a million packets or something like that. I, I forget exactly the details of it, but um, yeah, I mean, I mean, 
good on them for finding the vulnerabilities, but you know, I, I don't know. Is that, is that providing value to anyone aside from marketing for, for Armis? If, uh, I guess this is like a, if a tree falls in the forest question, right? Yeah. Like if I think a vulnerability a that would never get exploited gets discovered, is there any value in fixing it? We talked about our evil hats. When I put my evil hat on for healthcare, I think that uh, modifying image data, uh, diagnostic image data in a healthcare environment, to me is on the tops of my list of attacks that I want to uh, prevent and detect. Because if my image as it's being scanned shows that, let's say I have cancer, let's hope not, but in transit, it's modified. And then when the radiologist reads it, there is no, it, you know, in either scenario, right? Whatever yeah, the case may yeah. be, uh, an attack against that kind of system is what that's. Or what the other way me. around. Yeah. Uh, like, what if you, um, what if you like, and this is just a crazy scenario, but what if you were to somehow compromise that, make it look like somebody had a disease that was incurable or something, and then you start marketing to them or you start, um, you know, I, I don't even know. Like you, you could use that as some sort of attack vector um, right. by using uh, fake positive versus yeah. fake negative. I mean, it doesn't I, have to be fake. Like I can take an image from someone else's scan that was positive if I have access to the database and I can just swap the names out on it, right? I mean, some other tricks you might have to pull, but I mean, all those cards are on the table, which is really nefarious. That's concerning. Well, the, this is, a, this yeah. is like a delivery mechanism and could affect patient care, quite frankly, but not uh, to an extent where, you know, insulin pumps, IV pumps, diagnostic imaging. I think there's a lot yeah, of other... And, and yeah. not like ransomware where they're having to ship patients to a different hospital. Correct. I mean, it's always dangerous if you've got to physically take patients out of the hospital, you know, put them in ambulances and move them to physically to a different right. hospital, depending on, you know, like, like ICU, COU, stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, those are not floors that you want to empty out and move those folks mm -hmm. and get them mobile. Another story that um, <clears throat> I found interesting because I worked with Renault. I love Renault. One of the founders of Tenable, uh, the original author of the Nessus Vulnerability Scanner. One of, I've been on record, I think, stating this in the past, one of the smartest people I've ever worked with my entire life. I will slightly disagree with the approach here. Um, I will agree with it on certain points, but disagree with it when it gets down to the actual fixing, right? So Tenable has made an announcement that it will help organizations disrupt attacks with new Active Directory security readiness checks. I'd imagine these are configuration auditing checks, like uh, have you uh, enabled LAPS? on your systems? Have you disabled uh, older authentication mechanisms? We could go through a laundry list. In fact, I had a talk I was doing that kind of went through that laundry list of like secure your Active Directory and like here's some stuff you can do to do that. So they can use these two uh, checks to uh, poorly uh, identify Kerber roasting, poorly managed uh, can or configured passwords, um, and then identify uh, these exposures is is how tenable kind of put it right because i don't know that they're vulnerabilities necessarily but certainly exposures yeah, con con configuration issues yeah but so like great i want to 
uh, I want to know about these and uh, but I really want to automate fixing them like automating the discovery is one thing and I do need to automate that because I want to see if these drift back to a previously vulnerable state in other words if my you know lapse implementation has totally gone sideways and someone's backed that out and I still have local uh, uh, local admins on the machine accounts or in the local admin groups, I want to know about that. Or if they're misconfigured in a, uh, a certain way, right? Like basically, if you've got the same set of credentials that's in the local administrative group across every workstation in my environment versus using LAPS, which allows you to create a unique set of credentials for each one. Uh, and if I got that wrong, please tell me because I'm, I'm digging deep in my memory of how that works uh, to form an example. But I want to so know if I, something's drifted, right? Right. But I want to automate the fixing. That's the hard yeah. part, right? That's the part <clears throat> that Tenable doesn't help you with necessarily. Well, the quality has gone there dangerous. and gone, we're going to help you apply those patches. But how are you going to apply the configuration? You know what I mean? That's a, Applying patches and changing yeah. configuration do different things. Well, I mean, group policy makes it pretty easy to to make these changes across the whole organization. But you know, I think where everybody gets hung hung up is how much legacy stuff is going to break as soon as we change these Kerberos uh, settings. Like, like we got to yeah. figure that. We out. Talk, we're talking about that with Tyler, right? As you mm. configure your Active Directory, how do you know what? I get rid of NTLM in some capacity. Oh shit! Oh, yeah, what breaks then? Yep. Yeah, potentially it'll break stuff. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, jumping up a level, you know, I think in general, this is what vulnerability management um, products should have been doing and companies should have been doing the whole time. Like I, I used to work with uh, one of the pen testers I used to work with had a script that he wrote, uh, probably still sitting on his GitHub, you know, that was, I think it was just called low hanging fruit. And it was designed to just go through Nessus scans and pull out like this really important stuff that gets hit by attackers and, and works for pen testers over and over and over again. To Tenable's and, credit, Adrian, we've, we've done that. You can preempt that. Like I, as when I worked there, I would run scans that only found that stuff. So you didn't have to scan everything mm -hmm. and then parse it out. It's just right. different ways to, you know, six and one half dozen and the other basically. Yeah. And so they've included, uh, they, they now have a scan type um, just for these 10 active directory low-hanging fruit items right. you know that that are here like one of them is just blank passwords that i want to say that's been a plugin for a really long time to be honest with you like i said yeah, a lot it, of the more mature like tenables of the world have had facilities to check for these conditions for a really long time did you ever have visibility on how often customers would create custom scans though versus just going with default scans from what i can remember it's been several years since i've worked there that very few in my estimation customers would create custom scans i think because when i would create custom scans customers would ask me to share them with them can you send yeah. that, right? Can you send that to me? Like, yep. I created the scan to do this. They'd be like, oh, can you send that to me, right? So I would largely be the person more than willing to do that, you know, for our customers at that time. Yeah, and, and you made a lot of videos that would, you know, here, you know, it's, it's really not that hard. I got a lot of feedback for several it, years after I made those videos, too, which I think was great. I yeah. mean, I'm glad it helped people, right? Yeah, you know, it, it helped me. I, I watched a few. 
So, right. I, but I want to see Tenable take that next step that Qualys has taken. Like, will help you not only identify the stuff but fix it. I, I'm still not clear on what uh, Tenable AD, their new AD product is, and if this is like a kind of a pitch for mm-hmm. it. But from everything I saw, you know, they're saying no. This is just, uh, you know, this is now a custom or built-in uh, template for a Nessus scan that you can run. So uh, um, at some point I need to dig into that new product and see what they're doing there. It's interesting that, yeah, we've seen <clears throat> the vulnerability management companies like Tenable pivot into AD security. Uh, mm-hmm. We got like folks like some purists that play into the kind of backup and recovery of it. Uh, Ativo is a deception company that's playing in AD uh, kind of security. Javelin Networks, in my opinion, they were a huge sponsor on the show, and I loved the team there. They got swallowed up by Symantec and haven't really heard much from them since. But I think there's a play in the market for yeah. Active Directory Security is my point. Yeah, I think it's kind of crazy, like at the point where I feel like we should be moving past Active Directory to something else. I don't know if it's Jump Cloud or if it's Okta, you know, just as mm-hmm. a so. Um, we've got brand new... Active Directory protection products coming out. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's not going yeah, away to- anytime soon. It's it's never going. I mean, it's going to be here for longer than we <laughs> don't like. say that. But, uh, <laughs> no, but April, to your point, <clears throat> my story number four. Qualys is presenting a black hat taming vulnerability management overload. Is unpacking the importance of vulnerability patching to discuss why companies fail to patch promptly even when patches are available and other barriers companies face to delay patching this is something we've been talking about for the better part of 20 years yeah i want to i want to hear that talk it but we're still talking about it because no one solved the problem to your point april I'm not. I'm I literally not have just, that in my note. I have that in my notes. Like, yeah. why are we still talking about patching? It's unbelievable, why? right? <laughs> it blows my mind. People talk. Well, about, people literally ask me, like, "What are the trends you're talking about on the show?" I'm like, "Look, no one solved vulnerability management and patching." Like, I hate to be the person. Like, I I hate to even verbalize that because I worked in vulnerability, but I'm like. It's still. It's not solved, right? I worked in a university 20 years ago. And we struggled with that problem 20 years ago. And I'm like, oh, granted, things have gotten better. But I'm like, we're still talking about this problem. And this is this is concerning for me. So so I think the problem is is not with patching. It was with the general architecture we we're using. You know, like in, in the past, any conversation on patching, I, I'd often start off with, you know, just a statement that patching is generally the most disruptive thing you can do in an IT environment. And I think for a long time that was true. You know, but now that we're moving to this new everything high availability model, you know, where everything's in a cluster, you know, everything is, uh, you know, you can individually take out machines, patch them, put them back in without I don't actually know, though, taking agent, services. Has, have things gotten better even from a sheer automatic update process? If you look at Windows automatic update, right, you look at Linux, largely have standardized on Ubuntu. Because I can't find anything really good open source to help me with that, and I don't want to code it myself in something like Ansible or Puppet or Chef, I use Automox, right? Resounding endorsement for, for Automox. <laughs> um, but I use so, Automox I mean, to basically go, just apply patches to my stuff. 
Like look, I look found, at, look I at, found it like it like not not that much breaks anymore. I mean, I'm uh, yeah, again, yeah. I don't have 100,000 systems. And I think when so, you start when you start getting in those it's a numbers game, you start getting in those numbers. Yeah, yeah. Smaller numbers like we're talking thousands of systems or less. Uh, you're you're in not in bad shape, right? So so we're already a couple years in since Microsoft said screw it, you know, we're just going to reboot your computer. Yeah, you know, we're not going to we're not even going to tell you right. about it. It's just going to happen. You know, they got to the point where Windows booting up really fast um, was a thing, and restoring all your applications and everything to where mm -hmm. they were was a thing. And if there was something open unsaved, then the reboot wouldn't be successful. So that wasn't a problem. And I think at some point somebody at Microsoft said, "You know what? We're just going to reboot it without telling you." And, and that's so cool as long as, I, as, long as I can people. have blackout windows. As long as I can say, like, during these hours, like, yes. we're doing shows and we're using Linux and Windows systems and Mac systems. Like, basically, we use all three platforms. Like, right. don't during these times. Outside of those yeah. times, totally cool, right? And, and what you're saying about it not being that big of a problem anymore, um, when I've talked to CISOs with large environments, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of endpoints, that's exactly what they say. They say, yeah, you know what? Patches still break things every now and then, but, but it, it's, it's seldom a, enough yeah. that we're comfortable taking the risk. And sure. when, when, when a it breaks, new critical you go patch fix it. comes yeah, out, you go fix it. You know, they, they just shoot it out there and uh, much rather deal with the aftermath of, of an issue with a patch. You know, than to risk waiting. Mm. So I think that is what's happening. But also on the cloud side of it, you know, once you get to the point where, you know, you don't have to take down services, you don't have to have defined uh, outage times anymore. Paul or April, I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you had to be there Sunday 3 a.m. to roll out patches and new firewall changes and stuff like that. Oh my god! Yeah, that, that was my my <clears throat> life for there. about eight years. <laughs> been there. Mm -hmm. On a weekend, like yeah, you know, Sunday, Friday, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, like three a.m. Yeah, like okay, like like explain this to me. So we're gonna party in the weekend, and we're gonna do this at a time when our brains are barely functional. That's when we're gonna make all the high, like like <laughs> all the critical changes we're gonna do when our brain is at its weakest point mm -hmm. in the entire week, right? Okay, sure, yeah. Let's, <laughs> Nothing's going to go wrong with that. But clearly, I mean, we can, this is not every organization that's here. Yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot are just uh, the availability problem. It's still very scary. And I, I think like anything else, it's going to take somebody in leadership saying, yeah, you know what? We're just going to break with tradition, tradition. And, you know, just as soon as the patch is available, patch it, screw it, do it. I wonder if this is a mindset shift, because I've noticed this as well, but I wonder if this is a mindset shift that has come along with SaaS and those types of um, those types of services, because they're patching all the time. And 100%. we're not even I noticing. Right. We're, we're yeah. not noticing at all. Any no, of the differences, I, <laughs> except there, there's new functionality or that something that didn't work does. We're, and maybe there's a bug. And I think that people are more willing to accept that now, that there, there might be a bug. And that, um, that you know, if you want to have the latest and greatest, you're going to just have to deal with some of the problems that come along with that. I love your analogy, April, because I, I've always been a huge proponent of adopting the DevOps model for software development into IT, right? You've, you've actually hinted 
towards it uh, a couple of points in the show, right? I love this integration of, like, let's just push forward. Let's remove our technical debt. Let's upgrade. Even if there's not, like, a, oh, my God, timeout, level 10 severity vulnerability that we have to patch. Let's, let's just upgrade. Let's be on this regular cycle, similar to DevOps, of pushing out new stuff. And if it breaks, pushing out a fix, backing it out. Like, let's just continually push forward so that when there is that moment where, oh my God, like a print nightmare kind of moment, you're like, yeah, I'm just going to roll it out. Roll out the fix, right? And because I've kept up and kept my technical debt low, that means hopefully that you have less negative effects to your operational and security risk. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm living in a utopian world where this happens. <laughs> it's and it's funny like- because it's true. We can come together and we can make it happen when there is some O'Day out there that, um, you know, just dropped. But like, we're, you know, you probably have worse vulnerabilities out there to begin with, but somehow we can come together and we can push that one patch that one time, but we can't do it with all of the other ones. Agree, right? I totally agree, <laughs> April. Like, I, I, it, but I think it's laziness, right? I think it's it's somewhat apathy and laziness. Yeah. It's like it, uh, it, it's and, our, and our, our that, own like risk is like uh, I know there's an update, but. I don't want to apply it because it could break something and it's not critical. So I'm just going to let it fly out there because I got other things to do and I'm going on vacation and I want to write this new thing that I've been working on. So I'm not going to do that. Right. But if it's super critical, I'm going to be like, nope, dropping everything I'm doing. I'm going to do it. Right. I think we need it. Hygiene for me, I think is a really interesting thread to pull on when we talk about enterprise security. Well, I, I, I think the piece, you know, another talking about laziness, another piece that's missing there, a lot of people I, I just don't see can consider are mitigations. You mm-hmm. know, applying a patch was not the only thing you could do to protect yourself from print nightmare. I mean, if so, I mean, first of all, some of these vulnerable services, maybe you're not using at all. Nobody's right. using them at all. Why are they even running? Like you haven't done your hard, hardening. You know, so some mm-hmm. some good hardening would have, uh, you know, saved your bacon there before the vulnerability was ever discovered. You know, and in some cases, yeah, there, there's some simple mitigations you can put into place. And I think more uh, organizations need to spend the time to understand how the vulnerability works, how it can be exploited. Always good to have somebody in your staff that, you know, is, has that skill set, you know, that can uh, test out your mitigations, you know, so... Maybe you don't even need to wait on a patch because sometimes these patches can come kind of late, you know, and waiting on them is not a good move. You don't even need or somebody they, they come on broken, staff. Right? Yeah, but you don't even need somebody on staff to do it. You can bring in a third party to test those mitigations too. I mean, that's certainly enough. Yeah, April, I wanted to go to um, our story number two, um, shifting left. I found it interesting and I like uh, Invicti, right, who has uh, NetSparker and Acunetics talking about, like, just, it, it, it's basically what we've been saying in security all along. Like, you can't just do one thing or adopt one methodology and go, hey, I'm secure. And they're really calling out, like, if you're going, 
oh, I'm shifting left in my security program, and therefore, like, I'm good. I'm like, but that doesn't, that doesn't fix things across the board. Because there are, when I was uh, developing, like, hardcore full-time, right? Like, I knew that my development environment, my staging environment, and my production environment had these slight nuanced differences. And I could fix all I wanted in the code. And that was good. And I still, still you got to do that, right? But as I go through these different environments, there are also points where you can secure the running application as well. So, like, I think a lot of people kind of took shift left as this utopian world where if we just put security, like, early on in the development cycle, but shift left, like, we're all good. But that that's, no. What we're saying is you have to shift left and understand security when you're designing, when you're uh, implementing and writing code, when you're testing code, but also as you're pushing code out into all these different environments, you have to test it and also have runtime protections in your code as well. That it's more a comprehensive thing than just going like, oh, the buzzword shift left. So we'll just shift left and we're secure, right? That's not the case. Yeah, I am a huge, as you know, a huge uh, supporter of um, ed of bringing developers and and engineers and DevOps engineers and DevSecOps and all the all the people that we don't traditionally think of as part of the security team into our world and mm. teaching them security, having them work with the red team, having them see how attacks work, having them um, uh, see how um, how people that are attacking a system think. So that when they're designing defenses, they can think more like those people, just like we do when we're designing security defenses. Why don't we do this with developers? I It, it boggles my mind. I will never understand um, why we are not pushing harder for this, because they're the front line of defense. They are the absolute first um, people when we talk about building it securely, it absolutely requires them to be on board. It requires them to have the same knowledge and the same con conceptual uh, understanding of security basics, if nothing else. And I don't even think they're getting that, especially if they um, have not been through like a formal uh, college type of program. They usually have to take at least one security class, which is not great. <laughs> don't get me started on that. <laughs> no, I, I agree. <clears throat> it's interesting that uh, when you put it in the context of like the their background in education and understanding the bug that may come back to them, right? Like that requires education on their part, but also how much work it is. Like I feel like we make it sound easy. Like, oh, you need to have some kind of plugin that's looking at their source code in your IDE for your developers. And then when they make a build, you need to build that and then run some kind of DAS tool against it and then funnel those results back to the developer. But that takes into account the developer has to understand like what all that means and actually fix it, right? And that that's different from uh, just being able to understand in your source code like where you need to make the fix. And if you weren't taught that in school and you've got something that came back to you in an automated process, you may not understand that. That's a great point, too. It's true. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't see a reason to single out 
developers, you know, to me, shift left kind of takes a focus off the bigger issue, with which I think is about just shifting responsibility in general to the people with hands on, mm-hmm. you know, wh- whatever the individual thing. So, I'm, you know, what I push for is, you know, and, and, and kind of the, the question I like people to think about is, you know, was it a problem that we like at some point just got the mindset out there that security is something security does, you know, so the mindset for other people is, okay, you know, there's a security department, you know, that that's something that somebody else does. That's not a thing that I do, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I think the right move was to say, Hey, if you own an asset, whether that's a code base or it's uh, servers, you're a windows admin, you're a developer, whatever it is, uh, you should own security for that asset. So as a developer, it doesn't, mean that you need to understand how ransomware works. You don't need to know how to reverse engineer things or, you know, even to run a scanner, but you should understand, you know, the portion of security that applies to your specific area, you know, and that should just be part of your job. But of course, if you're going to shift responsibility um, for security to the individual subject matter experts, um, you know, they can't do that on top of their current workload. You got to make some allowances for that as well. You got to be able to send them off to training. You got to give them extra time to do those security tasks. And organizations can't expect their people to understand all of the threats and risks associated with their job, which is exactly where insider threat and uh, security awareness training comes into play, um, making sure that there's targeted training because we, you can't expect mm-hmm. them to come in knowing what you know who's going to attack them in their new role. Um, you have to you know tell them about it. You have to walk them through it and hold their hand and and uh, make it relevant to them. And I think that's an important role for the security group to have inside a company: e- educators and uh, yes, yeah, and and. Um, consultants. You know, if you've got a question about security, you know, you should feel comfortable to go to the security team and say, hey, I've got these three vulnerabilities. I don't have time to fix all three. Can you help me prioritize them? You know, maybe I can fix one or two, but, you know, which one should I pick? Or, you know, can you demonstrate for me how this works or why it's an issue? You know, why is this critical and not a low or something like that? Um, But yeah, you're right. Um, I think that's what the security team should be doing more of that and less of, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the stuff that the subject matter experts can do and should be doing. Like even I said before, not running scans, maybe they can do that, you know, like a SAS scanner and a DAS scanner, you know, not a terrible thing for, you know, maybe there's one lead in the dev group that knows how to do that stuff, that knows how to do a little bit more security stuff than the other people, you know, the whole champion model and idea. My mindset is that if somebody in the organization does not understand their role in security, does not understand what security is, does not understand the purpose, doesn't understand the risk, doesn't understand any of those things, it's not their fault. It's our fault. We should be yeah. the ones teaching them those things. It's completely the, or, the organization and security's fault that they we have failed them in educating them and protecting them. No, April, them. it's the intern's fault. It's the intern's fault. <laughs> no, no, it's, fault. <laughs> it's not. I like what April said. I think he said it's, a bad password. It's his fault. I think traditionally we've been like the, oh shit, that's a really bad thing. And yeah, that, that's kind of okay. Right. When we shift that to the developer to go, 
the developers making things like, oh my God, that's a horrible security thing. We need to fix that versus like, yeah, I know I got that library that I'm importing that is vulnerable, but like I never accessed the vulnerable method. If we can get people to the, like uh, developers to that higher level of understanding of security, that's a huge win for everyone. And I love to pick on that example and pull that thread where you've identified in your SDLC that I'm importing a vulnerable library, right? And this is my like kind of litmus test for uh, vendors, security vendors in this space to go, okay, yeah, I've imported, a, I've been in this situation. I've imported a vulnerable library. And you're telling me that I, my code, my application is vulnerable because I imported this vulnerable library. When I dig into it, I never call the vulnerable method in that library, right? We, we, we get down to this like understanding, like allowing the developer to understand the risk that they're posing in their code. That's when we win. We're not gonna win if it's up to us in security where there's one security person for 500 or 1,000 applications yeah. that has to help people, right? That's it. That's the most important reason we have, like, this isn't an option. Yeah. We, 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 it has to happen because a corporate security team will never be large enough to catch all this stuff. Correct. But, like, we, we need their help. We, we need them to, you know, even if it's an extra 1%, 5% or something like that, like, you know, it's a huge help, even if it's just them knowing the difference between a secure method and an unsecure method and and making that choice on their own without needing us to now you know the security team to give the thumbs up or thumbs down like, Adrian like that's in April, a huge help my story number 11 white source has launched what they called cure the industry's first self-fixing software it's oh, light boy. on details i kind of like where it's going right like i don't know the basically the, the way I understood it was like we can look at all the flaws and then potentially implement the fixes automatically. Is that is that kind of what it, uh, what they were going at? I, I, all we have to do is pair this with the GitHub, the new GitHub feature that writes your code for you, and and there you go. Just let these two things go at it. I think in certain circumstances, they could write code better than I could. Although I don't know if that's saying much. I mean, how, how scary is that? Like, like one AI writing code and another AI fixing it <laughs> without any human in the process. But if you just focus on AI fixing it, right, it could be just like importing this new version of the the module, and you know this method is called this something else. That can be automated. But you're not going to read 100% of the time. This is not going to work, right? But it could be something you build in your process where you let the AI run and make all those code changes and then see where it breaks. And then your human has to do maybe less work to fix it, right? But the AI has gotten you 80% of the way there. A April's laughing. I'm living in I'm, utopian I'm laughing, world. I'm, I'm, no, I'm picturing, I'm having this like sci-fi moment where I'm picturing um, like the comet eventually that it's just like, um, didn't mean humans wrote them out. <laughs> yeah, the, the comet is... It's just is, a comment in the code. It's just, you know. The human's whatever. like, Dave, <laughs> close the pod bay doors. And the AI's <laughs> like, no, Dave, I can't do that. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, I do, I but I do like where white source is going because I think this is a similar analogy to uh, where I like Qualys applying the patches, right? 
I like white source going, we're just going to like help you fix the stuff, right? I think this is a similar analogy and not bad. Yeah. I mean, if if it's called Copilot, by the way, the your AI pair programmer, you know, if GitHub, you know, from just comments can write your code, sure, you know, I, I, I this goes back to, uh, you know, a conversation that it might have been one of my micro interviews I was having earlier today. It's all mm. just kind of running together it's now, a blur. but um, yeah, you know, we're talking about automating pen testing and um, oh boy. how like like the attack surface management folks. With the OSINT and external scanning pieces, there's a lot you can automate, you know, where... Like from I agree, OSINT but it's different from automating code. Yeah, but I, I think it's the same thing here, where <laughs> some of the stuff you can automate... No, Adrian, I said it was different. Some of the stuff you can't. <laughs> but it's it's still helpful when you can do some of it, right? Mm. Yeah, but I mean... 100% is a dangerous thing to claim, right? Oh, is it claiming 100%? No. It, it, it never should. No. No, that, that's usually a red flag. That's like... like <laughs> we stop 100% of attacks, Adrian. It's unhackable. Uh, or unhackable, unhackable is what right. I was going to say. Yeah, every time that pops up, you're like, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. How long is it going to take somebody to poke a hole in that? Usually less than 24 hours. I did want to mention uh, Coralite introduces a smart PCAP. Interesting this how interesting. it... But interesting how it segues into, you know, the conversation we're just having of, uh, like, how much should AI ML adjust and or modify my code to make it more secure? How much should AI ML determine what packets on the network should I... And I think this is what Corelight is getting at. How much should Corelight like capture full packets of this particular protocol and port maybe, but maybe just uh, NetFlow in this particular uh, IP and port pair? That's kind of what I gathered from this. Yep. So, I watched a demo video. That's exactly what that, it is. is the, am I kind of... Um, yeah. The, so and, this and it, sounds... It, it, Go ahead. Sorry, April. Go ahead. I was going to say that this sounds similar to something Black Ice was doing uh, back in the early 2000s, where if they detected, um, you know, so host IDS, if they detected something that looked like an issue, um, it would yeah, it take a packet. Full, right. Yeah, it would just opportunistically grab a packet, capture that. But the problem I always ran into 100% of the time is that the smoking gun was always a couple packets before where they started the capture. Yeah. You know, so by the time they detected it was an issue and started the capture, uh, it, it, it was never enough. Like it wouldn't tell me where the attack came from. You know, it was just like, <laughs> well, I can see the bad stuff happening, but I can't see where it came from. Cause mm. I, I need a couple more packets than that. Um, so yeah, I wonder if that's, you know, if, uh, if that's still an issue with this. I don't know, April, if you saw anything in the demo that, that answered that question. Um, I don't know. It, it looked like it was just more targeted, uh, what, what you were looking for. It looked like you um, you could create rules via a GUI, and you could look on certain ports or certain protocols, um, certain networks, um, and, and really be able to target and limit your PCAP. 
collection to just the the ports or protocols or whatever that you wanted to use and not every oh okay so it's trying to cut down and reduce the amount of output from the pcaps for right you know to reduce the storage and and things like that um so it's it's a it, it's a filter for pcaps if you will yeah, back back when I, we used to run uh, Security Onion, uh, when I when I set that up, uh, we had a um, I'm going to forget the name of it. Somebody somebody acquired acquired it, um, but it, it was basically a product that would allow us to do traffic shaping. You know, so I realized like 50 percent of the traffic on the wire we were capturing was just uh, replication, backup uh, replication traffic, and it was super easy. It just source destination port. You know, pull that out of the packet capture. So we weren't wasting a ton of storage uh, for packets we would never need. So yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty smart. It's just not what I was thinking of when they said smart, but I think they are doing some of that too. They say selectively capture packets based on detections and anomalous traffic activity. So it, it'd be it's really true. interesting to check out. There were some integrations, and it looked like you could um, potentially have something else that might detect and like an anomaly. And then mm-hmm. you could have it trigger uh, the PCAP at that point. But if we yeah. all had XDR, we'd be okay, right? Uh, Paul. <laughs> uh, on that note. <laughs> if there ever was a triggering of Adrian. That's a smooth pivot. XDR. Smooth pivot. XDR right. solves all our problems, right? Uh, let's see. Is it me or is it like the theme of Black Hat like XDR? Like I saw a lot of XDR I mean, stuff. I, I I remember um Wade and Jay Jacobs uh and I think a few other folks uh for an RSA did an analysis of talk titles across like 30 mm-hmm. years of RSA. So you could watch the buzzwords change over time and, and nothing ever repeated. It was literally just the buzzword of the year, like uh, I don't. I don't recall anything repeating in that, you know. And it was just, uh, and that's that's the one this year. Yeah, I'm surprised there's a lot of XDR and not much uh, ransomware apparently in in the talks. So should we talk about XDR? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, TLDR and XDR. It, it's it's basically just an evolution of of EDR. Um, but the, you know, it, it, which is an evolution of SIM, you know, it, it's just a better detection and response. It's just a constant struggle to get closer to where we need to be with less manual work, you know, less false so positives. So, Adrian, is it, is it like a, the triad or the quadrants, as we call them, right? Because over the years, we've actually presented on some of these things. Like you gotta have something on the endpoint, something on the network, something collecting your logs. That's the triad. The fourth quadrant is I've got to have some threat intelligence. Mm-hmm. Is that? And then I think the buzzword kind of came out as XDR to cross all those things. Yeah. So I actually need to. Uh, we did some micro interviews with uh, some analysts at Forrester, and uh, and a couple of them, it sounded like they had very specific definitions for what had to be in the feature set to be XDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'm really looking. I'm I'm haven't talked to them yet because I'm planning on doing it closer to when we 
do some XDR product testing. You know, so that's going to answer a lot of the questions for us. Right now, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it, it sounds right to me, but um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to those analysts and hearing their opinion on what features have to be there for it to be XDR. Because um, they're very much saying it in the, you know, tongue-in-cheek, like almost nobody's at doing true XDR. They're talking about, you know, if it's true, X, they kept using the term true XDR. What so. is true? I don't want to know. You know what? Yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk Forget to them to find out. Uh, yeah, I don't okay. know. Okay. I don't know. They, they've they've looked at it much more closely, and, and we will in the future, and, and uh, we'll have a, a more solid answer to that. But, yeah, Sentinel-1 has a new um, – it, it's actually not – they've already had their XDR product for a while, which they call Singularity XDR, which <laughs> – Again, we're we're going down that self-thinking route here, even with with product names, uh, you know, code thinking for itself. It, it makes me mildly uncomfortable. But uh, what they're actually announcing is is really just like a, a rule creating feature uh, for their XDR products. So they they have a bunch of modules and tools. You know, one is kind of like Wildfire Virus Total, where it analyzes new binaries that come into the the environment. Uh, another one just allows you to redirect data and uh, integrate their EDR product with SOAR tools and SIMs and stuff like that. And this one just happens to be for creating what, what sound like uh, Yara-style rules for your XDR stuff. The other XDR announcement is uh, Optiv is, is getting into the managed XDR game, which, why not? I mean, you see uh, Arctic Wolf, you know, and their valuation, insanely huge valuation, uh, that looks more like a, a software company than a services company, and uh, and sure, why not? You know, it it, it makes sense. And um, the thing, the question I have is: is that going to rub some of their uh, partnerships the wrong way? I mean, they resell just about everything in the market, right? Sur surely they're competing with some of those vendors now. You know, how how does Sentinel One feel about? Uh, Optiv having a managed uh, XDR service because almost everybody who does who has an XDR product also has a managed service to go along with that. So I don't know how that's going to work. And then uh, I think there was one other XDR. Yeah. Sentinel so one. No, we talked about Sentinel one. That's the one oh. that's just basically like a rule builder. Sounds like building. Detect yard style detection rules. Mm. Um, yeah, the last one is my number eight. So ForgePoint um, is a, a pure play uh, cybersecurity VC. They only do cybersecurity investments. Uh, founded a company called SoulCyber, and apparently this is fairly often for the, or, or common for a VC to actually start the company and like pick some of the key executives, give it some funding, and, and launch it rather than startup founders having the idea pitching it to the VC. So it's kind of like a reverse uh, from, from, I guess, what you typically see in a movie or something like that. Um, kicked off with a $20 million round. Also looks like it's going to be like a managed XDR type offering. Uh, MDR. It's, it, it seems like anything labeled MDR is now getting rebranded XDR. Mm. That's so confusing. Well, it's it's all about better detection and response. You know, I, th I think just to take all the mystique out of it, like it's all just trying to figure out how to 
do better detection and response without having to throw a room full of So what you're saying is we're going to see next-gen XDR. This is next-gen sim. You know? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess we're not using next-gen anymore. Otherwise, this would be called next-gen sim or next-gen EDR or something like that. I guess we're just picking different names now. Different names rather than because next gen got a bad rap. Well, you go with like mil- military grade XDR because that's going to be the new one. My my recommendation was to do continuous next gen. That way you're always right. Continuous next gen. Continuous next gen continuous military next gen. grade XDR. Yeah. No, it didn't catch on. Nobody listened to me. You know they could have put the whole buzzword uh, game to bed there. You didn't have a good acronym. XDR. It's got an X in it. It sounds cool. It, yeah, it is. No, you're right. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. It's got to be catchy. And and X is, you know, anything with an X, uh, you know, is like a plus five million to your funding rounds. X-Men, um, Xbox. I mean, for real. <laughs> yeah. No, the X is, that's the thing. Xs are cool. They're underused in the English language. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, anything else from Black Hat that, um, other than XDR? <laughs> um, let's see. It's kind of hard I... on a Wednesday. It, I, I think yeah. next week probably we'll have some more insights, but. So there's a interesting new, so another funding I have, a company called DNS Filter, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like a DNS firewall. Um, but they do more than just look at, uh, you know, like the IP address and the domain names and when the domain name was registered. They also analyze the website content and they do image analysis on it like uh, Pixum does, Paul. Mm-hmm. So that they'll actually uh, do comparisons and look and see if it's, if it's uh, trying to masquerade at something else. Uh, and at the DNS level, they'll, they'll block, it, block it if it looks uh, like a threat. And it's, uh, I mean, nothing else... Exciting about it, except, you know, Dmitry Alperovich uh, is on their board, you know, so. And 30 million Series A, you know. Look, yeah, it's pretty good looks like, Yeah, it looks like something to watch. Awesome. And through, through reading this article, I learned GCHQ over in the UK mm-hmm. actually is probably old news for other people. Their National Cybersecurity Center actually runs security services for the country. At like the country level, mm-hmm. you know. So like, imagine if Cloudflare was run by the U.S. government or something like that, and they call it Active Cyber Defense. And DNS is one of the things they run, but there's this whole smorgasbord of services. It's like secure web gateways, like all kinds of stuff. And right now, it's just for government services, as as, as mm-hmm. I understand it. Um, but the plan is to expand it to the whole country, so individual citizens, private businesses. Um, but kind of an interesting idea, like uh, at the country level, running security services for people, and, and not doing it to here. not not doing it to uh, to block researchers, and <laughs> not not doing it like uh, you know China does that, you know, and in the Middle East they do that somewhat, but uh, with with different goals, I think. That would never work here. Sorry, I agree. <laughs> I, 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 agree, I mean, the, the government can te- can can like tell give people guidance here, and people are okay with it. But as soon as the government starts running the services, 
then it's, it's all downhill. Yeah, people go right around it, I think. Any other stories you want to cover this evening? No, I'm good. You good? I don't think I have any more either. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening and watching this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. Adrian April, thank you for so much. We'll see everyone next time.